This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast, the show where I get to sit down with some of the most innovative founders and successful CEOs to talk about their climb to the top, their challenges along the way, and how they got to where they are. This is episode 124, and today I sat down with Stephen Borelli, the founder and CEO of Cuts Clothing. On a mission to find the perfect t-shirt, Stephen started Cuts in 2016 and has since grown the business to a $100 million company and created a new category he calls work leisure. Stephen and I talked about his childhood growing up in Washington State to working at an advertising agency where he got pulled out of a client meeting to moving back home to start Cuts. We talk about how he got his first 1,000 customers, how he leans on OKRs, and why he believes in blind faith. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, tell all of your friends, and check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Hey, Steve, how's it going? How are you? I'm doing good. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. It was great to meet you at the All In Conference, and I'm glad we got to, we're getting to do this. All In Summit was really fun. <laughs> Elon did not show. That was, and that was a big bummer. That was a bummer. I was excited for that. I know. Just to be in the same room with them would have been kind of cool. Yeah, it was great meeting you. I've heard about Cuts forever now through Ethan Frame from movement watches from before. I know I'm back in those days. So I'm excited. I know you guys recently launched women's. I'm actually wearing one of your shirts right now. The the mob, the mob. Right? I want to call this color Dusty Rose. I think the real name is ballet, but this is like a dusty color rose. It's like a dusty ballet. (laughs) You have a tomboy, the little thicker, tighter one. Yes, it is. It's like, it's super, it's my favorite fit of the three. But before we kind of dive into it, let's tell everybody what Cuts Clothing is. Yeah, Cuts is a, a now a men's and women's uh, apparel brand, and we make clothing for the sport of business uh, in the work leisure category. What do you mean clothing for the sport of business? So all the clothes that we make are geared towards the athlete in the boardroom. And so we believe that, you know, there's a new generation of people entering the workforce that were that have a competitive mindset that want to win and want their clothes to help them perform best in the new way people work. People don't just go to the office anymore. They, they do work on planes. They do work on coffee shops, hotel lobbies, and the clothes that you need for those settings needs to, to fit you comfortably. So it's not athleisure, it's work leisure. And our uh, saying is, uh, you know, we make clothing for the sport of business. Uh, and that's something that has been, you know, uh, kind of a category definer uh, statement for us. So it's not so much hitting the gym. It's not so much, I guess, being so sporty and going on the field and playing. It's more about work, like you're saying, like being aggressive or being hardworking. This is mm-hmm. for them. Yep. Did I get that? Yeah, hardworking. That's the mindset. So the mindset of an athlete is very similar to the, the modern day business person. And, and, you know, our clothes very much have to be are, are designed for people that are, are great and uh, pay attention to health and wellness. And that's a huge pillar of ours where uh, if, you're, if you're not healthy and, and paying attention to working out and eating right, you, you're not going to be able to operate in the boardroom or the office at your peak. So our clothing does mirror that. But like you, like you said, it's not clothing for the gym, even though there's some similar properties of the clothing. Awesome. So I can't wait to hear your story and how you um, got started. Let's, I guess, take it way back. Where are you from originally? I'm from Wenatchee, Washington, uh, a small wow. town. Yeah. Washington State. Washington State. Never you don't even, a lot. What was that? You don't hear Washington State a lot from founders and stuff like that. Yeah, this is true. What was it like growing up? I, you know, was very into sports. 
my first couple of memories was watching Michael Jordan on his second three-peat when they came and played the Sonics. I think it was in 96. And that's kind of what I became, you know, a huge sport fanatic. I played anything I get my hands on, basketball, soccer, hockey, even. And really like that was my, my main passions, like from, you know, 10 to 18. Did you have any siblings and what did your parents do? I have a twin sister, which. Wow. Like identical twin? uh, Fraternal twin. Okay. I have an older sister and a younger brother. So there's four of us. My parents come from a great family. Uh, they love each other. They're still together. My mom is my they're from they're, uh, my mom is a family of immigrants from Cuba, and my dad's first generation Italian, and so they're they were they're they're New Yorkers, uh, and when they were my when they were like my early twenties, they were living in New York. It was uh, the late eighties, and they were like, oh, "We got to get out of here because it was, you know wasn't the safest." So. They moved to Washington because they they just heard great things about living in uh, Eastern Washington, and they just always wanted to get out of the city and kind of live the American dream. So they moved to uh, Wenatchee, Washington, and my dad sold apples, like the the produce apples, and he sold produce, you know, all all over the world. And he's and he's an entrepreneur himself. He owns like a a smaller business. He's a solopreneur essentially. And he sells produce to the East Coast where he's from. So it kind of worked out well for him, this New Yorker that sells produce to, to the East Coast. So I got kind of... That's fascinating that they came all the way from New York City. I mean, that's far away. That's on the opposite coast. And they had never been there before. They just were like, we're going to get up and move the whole family uh, over there. But my mom's sister uh, was living in Seattle because she got a job out there. And they were like, oh, like you guys are there. It's a good enough excuse to go try it. And then they didn't like Seattle. And so they, they ended up moving to Wenatchee shortly after. Was, was your dad like selling apples before? Like, how did he get into the apple business? He, it's kind of a, you know, it was like a friend of a friend. Uh, this guy was starting his own business of selling apples. And it was kind of like this underground thing at the time. If you've ever seen the movie War Dogs, where most big places there's big contracts that sell apples but then there's like the little guys that don't really have someone to buy from that then my dad's service which can actually be pretty lucrative over time if you get certain good clients and so he kind of operated in that small business field and back then they were using faxes and things like that so you really did need a middleman to tell you hey here's the new crop of apples that are coming out uh, for your you know smaller store uh, here's what I can get you. And then he was the person that would put the trucks together and then ship the apples out. Now it's, you know, not as a uh, hot career uh, as, you know, there's not as many people that do what he does now simply because of the internet. And um, so it sounds like he was more of like a distributor maybe of the apples versus like having a farm and, and exactly growing apples himself. Okay. Interesting. And so when you look back as a kid, were there any like early signs of being entrepreneurial? I, so I was a good classroom student in terms of like, I did my homework and stuff, but I sucked at taking tests. Like I was just not a good student. Uh, not that I didn't try. I mean, I, I, I was prescribed Adderall when I a kid and, and, you know, had a ADHD in a way, like pe- the teachers knew I was trying, but it was just hard for me to sit down in a classroom and, I think my, because of how hard it was, and this really showed up in college too, like my inability to take tests good, I had to get creative at ways I would like position my teachers. Like I I built relationships with all my teachers in college so they could bump my C up to a B, little things like that, like that I had to like rely on like the people to people skills or, or like, you know, for, for when, for big projects, I would, you know, I would be like the the project manager, I would get someone from here to do half the project and someone from here and we would do it more efficiently. So I kind of went about the school system in a different way because it was so hard for me. Interesting. So maybe you kind of like leverage teamwork pretty early on. Yep, exactly. Totally leverage, leverage teamwork to, to help, to, to really help me pass school. Yeah. That's interesting. And so you have a twin sister, you said, it was just the two of you guys growing up. What happened from there? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you want to be a professional athlete? Well, my dad was an entrepreneur and 
he could always coach me. It's not like we were like printing money or anything, but true middle class where I always had food on the table and I never worried about money as a kid. And I had, you know, a Christmas gift and stuff like that. And I did appreciate my dad always being, being able to coach me in sports and he was around and he was just such a positive, like he was a great dad. And so I think I always knew like I wanted the freedom, even though he missed, he definitely didn't miss games because he had to work himself, but it was on his time where he could pick and choose when he wanted to work. And I think I really was like, that has to be me one day to kind of own my, my career path. Uh, but, you know, yeah, growing up till about my sophomore year, I wanted to be an NBA player. And then my sophomore junior year, I was like, I don't even know if I'll be able to play in college. (laughs) The dreams I think start getting real in high school. You start to get a clearer picture as to those childhood dreams if they're, uh, they've got a shot or not. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, you know, I thought I was going to grow. I'm like six foot. And I, the only place I got offered essentially was our junior college in town. And I know I wanted to get out of Wenatchee. Yeah. And then after that, I, I, I was really curious all through college trying to, you know, understand what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew, I knew it was something in business though. I just, I didn't know what. So why did you choose San Diego state? Another kind of stroke of luck. I wanted to go to UW, which is the, the harder school to get into, but my grades weren't good. And my SATs were like horrible. I think like, like, like SAT, ACT, like the worst of the worst scores. And I took them all three times and studied my ass off and just could not do well on those tests. So didn't get in, got into Washington state and then didn't get into UW. And then my sister during my junior year of college, right before I started applying, she had a basketball tournament at San Diego state for her like travel team. So I went out there and I was like, Oh, this campus is beautiful. And my dad was like, why don't you just apply to all the CSUs? It's only 50 bucks per application once you fill one out and you just check them. It was just super easy to apply. And so I applied to like, you know, I think I applied to almost every one. And San Diego State was actually one of the first schools I got into. Like I applied in like a month later, they accepted me, but I was never really an option because I was waiting on UW. Like I was going to UW if I got in. And then UW was the last one I heard from. Like I didn't hear from them almost like, it was like late, it was like April of, uh, of the, you know, of my senior year versus San Diego State, I got in like in November. And then it was kind of one of these things. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to Washington State University. And I actually went to orientation, paid the initial fee to kind of start school there. And in the spring, like, you know, around June, there was orientation. And I was like, or no, it was, it was maybe around May, right before my senior year ended. And it was just all my like high school buddies. And I remember going to my dad, I was like, I got I, I really am not happy about this. I remember where I was. It was one of those moments in life, like I had to speak up for myself. I really had to tell my dad how I felt. It was like, I could, even in the moment I knew it was like pivotal that I, I expressed like how my, how I feel. And I was like, I was sitting in my car at the, the, the uh, parking lot of my high school. And I was like, dad, I just don't think this is right for me. Like, I think, I think we should look to, for me to go somewhere else. I need to get, I need a fresh start. I just, I'm over all my high school friends. I need something new. And he was like, well, you got into San Diego state, you know, we can't afford out of state tuition, but I can pay for one year. Why don't we go out there and see if you like it? We go out there and immediately I was like, you know, th- this is the school for me, but my dad was like, I only have all what I saved for four years is going to cost. You're going to have to pay all of it in your first year. So it's up to you. Are you, are you okay with taking debt? And I've, of course, like I was like, uh, you're like, sure, dad, what yes, do you mean? That's fine. <laughs> it was like, it was, it was 30 K a year for out of state. And, uh, so versus like in state, it was like 10 K a year or something. So you're even. looking at like a $90,000 bill, basically. I, had no, I was like, Oh yeah. Over time, you can pay it off in 20 years, whatever. I didn't even know what the, that type of money would feel like. But my dad was smart. He was like, let's get out there a month early. Your, your aunt lives there. Why don't you get a job? Like, so I graduated and I immediately moved. I didn't really have a summer going into my senior year. I moved out there and I got a job. And I was working on campus at like the, the check-in. I was checking students in because they needed people to do that. But I, so I started making money before school started. So then, which I ended up getting it after the first year. I worked all the way through my freshman year. And then 
I, the, the requirement was you had to make 30 grand to apply as a, as self-sufficient and as to get in-state residency. So believe it or not, that was so like, it was a, a, a tremendous feedback then because I had to work a lot my freshman year to be able to get in-state residency. So I was working crazy hours and rushing a fraternity and doing freshman. And uh, it was, it was a busy year, but it's, it ended up saving me like 70 K. So. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. That's a lot of work to be, were you working full-time while also full-time in school? I, so I, the first half of the year, I only made $10,000 because we, me and my dad had it all tracked. I was working on campus and I just, it was hard for me to like fully get hours. And plus I was rushing a fraternity and, and I was, wasn't really taking it serious. The back half of the year, second semester, I got a job selling shoes at Nordstrom. We actually make pretty good money on, on, I worked kind of like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I, I was able to work my schedule. So all my classes were Monday through Wednesday. And I just, you know, worked like 30 hours a week there and made, you know, I got, I cleared the, the third, the additional 15,000 pretty easily. So you graduated, I assume you got one of your first jobs. What was your first job out of college? I was working at a branding agency called the, the Lambesis agency. And I was uh, a business, I did, was in business development, trying to get them clients and they were more of a traditional advertising firm where they did creative for like big box brands like Dasani, a lot of Coca-Cola brands, uh, Takori Jewelry, and they would do like TV commercials for these brands and, and, and do all the creative behind it. Cool. And so you were mostly doing kind of sales, I guess, business development with them, kind of signing on new accounts, or what are some of the things that you learned in your first kind of role, your first few roles, maybe out of college that have helped you as a founder? Just the biggest thing I learned from my first job was brand positioning can have a huge impact on whether a brand is successful or not. And, and when I had that job, I was tasked with doing that for each company and each company three times, doing it with a bunch of different businesses. So I had to get, I had to put the brand glasses on and really uh, learn. And so I think that has really helped me with cuts. And so what did you do after kind of working at Lambesis and how did you come up with the idea for cuts? Well, I was actually working at Lambesis. I was 25 and uh, Chad actually kicked me out of a meeting. He said, I was wearing dress shoes. You had to wear dress shoes, jeans, and a nice t-shirt, which was like kind of what everyone was wearing, but it was a, a Lululemon shirt. And he goes, Hey, you can't, Dasani was coming in and he goes, Hey, get out of here. You're, you're not, you're not allowed in this meeting. And it was a big presentation that I had worked on. And he was like, Hey, you, you can't do it. I'm going to do the presentation. You're, you're, you're wearing athletic wear. And at that moment, I realized there was a gap in the market of, I needed a shirt that I, that looked professional, but was still comfortable. And one that was wrinkle free, like all the athletic shirts, but wasn't geared. It wasn't athletic shirt. It didn't have a Nike logo or a Lululemon logo. And so I, I really could see how in, how big of a market was. Everyone in the office wore t-shirts, but it was always scattered and people had to iron them every day. And, you know, people are traveling when they get out of a, a airplane, they just want to be able to throw it on. And, and, and that's business. That's what business was becoming. I, I got to give my dad a lot of credit. I also always knew I wanted to be in a business that had a high repeat rate because my dad's business, it was really hard to get a client, but because Apple's not a lot changes. Once you get a client, you get a, he's had his clients for 30 years. So when I thought of t-shirts, I thought, Hey, what a great product. If we can do a really good job on their first order, we might win these people. It has a, such a high repeat rate of t-shirt. And so it kind of was an aha moment when that happened. I was at home and at that period of time in life, I was right. I had a huge book of ideas that I was writing out. Cause I, I knew I didn't like that job. Like as much as I talked good about it, I absolutely hated every second of it. It was like mad men. We had to be in there 10 hours a day, like during pitches, some people slept there. I mean, it was like everything I didn't want in a job, but, uh, it, it, you know, during those downtimes where I was working, I, I was just always writing ideas. When this one came to me, I was like, this is it. 
Interesting. What do you mean? Tell me about that. This is it moment. Where were you? What, what kind of struck? And then it's kind it sounds similar to the story you said earlier about being in the car, calling your dad about going to college. Was this kind of a similar moment? Can you kind of walk us through that moment? Very similar. So I actually don't tell a lot of people this, but the real aha moment was a couple of weeks later, they let me go after I had this <laughs> they fired you. They did. Well, They're like, this guy in his Lululemon shirts, get out of here. Kind of. I mean, we had a big company pitch and they were like, hey, like when, when they get ready for pitches, they in that world, they hire people for the pitch because the, the, because each contract is in the several millions of dollars for an RFP, you actually pay the creative agency like 150 grand to get pitched. So they, I was part of that RFP and everyone knows, Hey, if you don't get the client, there's a good chance that you all just get let go. So we didn't, we were like runner up. We didn't get the pitch. So the next day they come in and they're like, Hey, you five people are gone. And I had this idea and I remember being like, I need, I need to, I need to move home. I need to go do this. Like I, all my, uh, I had a buddy that started a watch company movement watches and they had just got started. And um, I was over at their house and I saw like they did 10K in sales that day. And so I was like, I think I can do e-commerce. Movement was giving me the, this reference point that it was possible. And I just had no appetite to go work for another company. So again, I remember calling my dad and say, hey, I'm, I'm coming home. I asked him for a job, but I, I needed to work at home so I could save up every penny for two years to put it into this because I knew I needed money. So my dad gave me a job. I was making like 30,000 a year, 40,000 a year, but I was able to live at home. So you moved from San Diego back home to Washington. At 20, yeah. 25 and 27. At 25 to 27 years old. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, right? I mean, I don't know how small the town is that you came from, but I would just, I would think that most people that are in that age gr group, you know, wanting to go out, being around lots of people, San Diego is a great place to be hanging out, going to bars, you know, having a great time. I'm not sure what kind of vibe is in Washington where you grew up. Maybe there's like a same, okay. <laughs> I'm assuming there's lots of farm land everywhere. Yeah, that's a bold move to, to move back home. I think a lot of people maybe listening might be afraid to do that because they might think it would be a sign of failure in some way. Did you feel that pressure at all or that in any way? Yeah, I mean, it was, well, before that, I had been thinking like I was hanging out with, it was three years out of school and I kind of was in the same friend group and even like, you know, the, the girls that were around, I was hanging out with the same girls and I was like, I need a fresh batch of life. And so when I got let go, I was like, you know, I need to move home. And I, it was kind of like my lot, like I was kind of like in this, I don't know what to do next, but I know it's not here. It's not in San Diego. I need a change. And I thought like, you know, moving home would be a good, great reset because I didn't want to move to New York and be, you know, strapped for cash. I was like, I can go home. I can breathe a little bit and kind of figure out what the next move is. I have this idea in mind and it, it's, it's just, it's, it's a place I can go in and I can think again. Yeah. Reset. I like hard. that word. Yeah, yeah. To reset things. And it, it was hard though. Like a lot of my friends were dating girls, starting to make money, living in downtown San Diego. Um, like that, that was hard giving that up. Cause I'm a social guy. I like to do things. I like to go out, but it was kind of like a, the, the, it was the beginning of my mental toughness. I really gained a lot of mental toughness moving home, especially just starting a t-shirt brand. Like it wasn't sexy. I didn't even tell people for the first year I lived there. Cause I was so ashamed that I was going home to start a t-shirt brand. It's not sexy what it is now. I mean, it, you know, my, even my mom and dad, when I originally told them the idea, they were like, are you sure? Like, this is what you're, you're kind of coming here to do. And it will definitely mentally was like, I would go to bed at night being like, I can't be that kid that came home to start a t-shirt business in this fail. I cannot. Happen. <laughs> oh my. There's no option to fail. <laughs> you have to make it happen. But parents influence can be really strong sometimes. And a lot of you know, I think individuals that might be in that same situation, let that get in the way. Like, yeah, what am I doing? I'm 27, I'm 26, I'm whatever. What am I going to start a, a t-shirt company right now? I'm going to move home to do it. Like, 
I think there's a lot of people that would not do that or, or change direction based on just what other people around them are saying. Yeah. I mean, my, I remember coming home and my, one of my buddies from back home was like, Steven, I don't think he like sat me down. He's like, you don't need to be doing this. He's like friend to friend, real talk right now. Yeah. And he was like trying to give me advice on like, Hey, I think you're smarter than this essentially. Mm, Uh, My mom, my mom and dad were supportive, but they, they, in, you know, I don't know if they, they said the right things, but I could tell they were like, this isn't it. My, my sister, I said, Hey, the name's going to be cuts. And I, and I could see it in my head that that's a great name, but she was like, it sounds like a haircut place or a barbecue company. And I was like, uh, you know, and, and, and at that moment I realized when I think so many people fall in this trap is when you're creating an idea, oftentimes you can see it, you can close your eyes and you can visualize it and you can see it. But when you tell people about it, it's almost like now that I've been kind of been through it there, there's no way they're going to be able to see it. So you shouldn't get mad that they, they don't have the same reference point as you. You should just know that going in. And so, and, and if everyone says, oh yeah, I get it. It might not be that great of an idea because it's already been done before. So I think that that's like kind of something that I, I wish if I was telling my younger self, not get so upset about people not understanding it. Yeah, exactly. What was your response to your friend who sat there and said, let me sit you down right now. And uh, I think you're way too smart for trying to do like, think of something more challenging to do with your life essentially than the t-shirt company, right? What was your response? I remember him, he vividly said, come on, man, you're doing a t-shirt company. And I just sat there, I said, hey, man, this is going to be a hundred million dollar business one day. Like I know how to sell it. Everyone's going to be shopping online soon. Back then, even in 2016, like especially specifically men's, it wasn't, you know, online shopping was just getting started. And I said, hey, I'm just going to do it. And as the more conversations went on and as more months, like the first couple of months, I was sort of committed to the idea. Then the next three months, I became more and more committed. And then by the end of the two years, like I wasn't getting, because I looked at it like if I just gave up now, these two years were wasted. I Because sh- if not, I should have went and got a tech job and worked my way up in a company. So every year, I every month I was more, I became more and more committed to it. And how did you work to stay committed when so many people maybe around you weren't, you know, kind of supportive? A, a lot of it was just trying to find the small wins and things and keeping momentum. The first year was like probably the where all my money is made. I always tell people like, the money's made in a founder like year zero before the idea even gets launched because that's the hardest. Like I would fly back and forth to LA, I was with a shitty manufacturer that wouldn't give me the time of day. I only had like $20,000. So every penny mattered. And I didn't know anything about e-commerce or garment. Like I was, I was learning, I had to Google like what, I didn't even know what the word pattern maker was, which is like the most basic term in fashion. Uh, I was like, how, who's the person that makes a garment? I was really learning like one step. What's a sample? <laughs> yeah, it, it was that, it was that, I was that of a novice. And so all those little things were, were all, everything seemed like a huge mountain to climb in the early days. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So did you say two years? Is that how long you were in Washington to get this off the ground? So the first year I was, and I really started like from the day I moved home, my dad's got like a little shed that he turned into like an office that's kind of out from the house. And I would just be in there like 24 seven, just like working. 
Um, luckily, when actually is like there's no nightlife, there's like no one that's 25 to 27. Yeah. It's like a, it's a small like farm town in a way. It's beautiful though. I absolutely like hiking water. It's an amazing place, but it's just not a place for like a. Uh, there's know, like no like, distractions, basically. Which was a, I always call it like my incubator. Like my parents created an incubator. My mom made me breakfast every day uh, and dinner, and I could really like it was such. I was laser focused on cuts. And, and, and so the first year I was really just working me flying back and forth to LA, working with the powder maker, getting the samples ready. Year two, we launched the Kickstarter and I started vlogging actually, which I did 10 vlogs. And that was when Gary Vee was coming up really big. And uh, I was like, oh, I got a vlog. This is how I'm going to become, Cuts is going to become famous. And I was just going to do anything Gary Vee said at that time. And so I did 10 episodes of like the first person. But what those did during the year, we were pre-revenue after the Kickstarter, it showed every, all my initial community, hey, Steven's for real. He's spending a ton of time doing this. Like I would carry boxes of, of like brown boxes of, of shirts, like a hundred shirts on the train from San Diego to LA. So I could shoot my friends in San Diego as the models because I couldn't afford any. And then train them back and I got it all on film. And so it was like, I think people could really see like, okay, Steven, he's given his heart and soul to it. And that's ended up how I, how I found three guys that were willing to join me and were willing to work for free for the first uh, couple of years. Wow. A couple of years working for free. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. So after we launched the Kickstarter, we did 40,000. And I think the, like my pet, like the early haters, a couple of them started to shut up at that moment because it wasn't a lot, but it still was like, okay, $40,000 is not nothing in, in a month. But then right after that, I teamed up with Carter. He was working at PwC, which is a, a, a big four accounting firm. He hated his job too. He, you know, he got his master's in accounting, was there for three years or four years. He said, hey, Stephen, let me help you. And it was really like the, one of the, the best people I've ever hired because I was not a finance guy. I knew was going to learn manufacturing. I was going to learn like digital marketing, but I didn't, I needed someone to kind of handle the books. And I told him day one, it's your job to make sure we don't go out of business. And it's my job to listen to you when to slow down, but I'm going to push it as hard as I can. And we were such a good yin and yang. And he found me through vlogs and he, we worked out at the gym together and, you know, he started asking questions about it. And then the same type of deal, one of our Kickstarter backers was this guy named Sean. He worked at Boeing. He did operations for Boeing. And he was like, hey, I'm super interested in this. I've wanted to find a small company. I'll work for free as long as you want. I just want to be able to use real data and kind of play around with it and, and use real data in my models that I'm making for Boeing. Because Boeing, he, didn't, he never got to really see his work. He made models and then it got passed to the next guy. So he was using cuts as a way to kind of learn while also helping me. And so kind of those two guys initially were, were really huge for, 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 for cuts. That's awesome. And throughout the years, what have been some pivotal moments that really kind of changed the trajectory maybe of the business? Obviously great hires you've had, but do you think of any like moments maybe in the press or a certain influencer or something, you know, there's always so many amazing serendipitous things that I think happen, especially with a brand, someone picks it up, something happens. What moments have you had or experienced? I'll, I'll give you a grassroots one. And then like, a famous one because the product was so like I was the, I was the target customer like a lot of brands they have like uh like a Henry in their office they said this and they actually like cut it out and they say it's that that's essentially what I was I was a young working professional that worked in a casual work environment so anyone that I was around my friends like we had our first thousand customers almost immediately and then over the years that gave us such a head start and so I didn't realize it at the time, but it was so huge for us to be able to get our first thousand customers from a very, very organic and fast way. So that was one that I think was, was huge that I really realized like later, years later. But the, another one was uh, Christmas of 2018. We went from, uh, we did 2 million that first year. We were starting to really see some momentum, but the four of us all worked were remote. I like two guys lived in Washington. One guy lived in San Diego and one guy lived in LA and, uh, Patrick Mahomes wore our shirt on, uh, Christmas day. And he posted about it. And he was one of our first, like 500 customers or something. 
and he he bought a shirt and then like it kind of we were like oh shit this is like a moment and then we dm'd him and he dm'd us back and he's like hey i like these stuff then we got in the chief's locker room and then from there like we just spread wild within the athlete community patrick introduced us to this guy named garrig and who's a, a he was like a wide receiver for them and then you know that guy introduced us to this and this and then all of a sudden we had all these athlete connections because you know we got the best guy out of the gate and so that was pretty cool another one was very similar jj watt emailed me and he's like hey i love these shirts i want 20 of them and then he wore it courtside when he went to see the houston golden state play so that was uh, another cool like moment where we were like okay we this is like we we got something here yeah that's exciting i mean for all the challenging times which we're going to get to now it's nice to have those perks <laughs> you know those serendipitous times so speaking of challenges what are some of the most challenging times that you've had to overcome when did shit really hit the fan or when did you mess up when did you you know fall and have to get back up in the early days it was when we were switching manufacturers we had just finished the kickstarter we 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 did 46,000 in sales but we needed like 150 like i totally misread how much it was going to cost we didn't have enough dollars to fulfill even the kickstarter orders so i had to take out a 20k credit card carter had to take out one and then i asked my dad for a $40,000 loan and so to cover it and my dad gave me the money Carter and me have put together another 40. So we had $80,000. We had barely enough to get through. And we were switching manufacturers because the first one, he just delivered the goods way short and he was over it. He was like, I never want to talk to you again, Stephen. I'm done. Partially because in the, I gave him an unrealistic PL, like five of this, 10 of this, 20 of this, which most people, they make you do runs of 500. So in hindsight, I see why he, he was like, Stephen, get away from me. But kind of when we switch manufacturers, we had like looking back, like if that next PO didn't go good, we would have been done. And it just was one of those moments. I was also in the car talking to Carter. I was like, because Carter was like, hey, man, this has to work out or like we're pretty much toast. And so every move that like next couple of months from like the early part of 2017, it was like, okay, Facebook ads, we were looking at every campaign with like the closest fine-tuned comb making sure that like every dollar spent was truly maximized and there's just a different level of, of uh closeness you look when your back is truly like uh, and up against the wall like that but we executed and we took that 120k and turned it into you know 300k or whatever and then that profited and we kept we were profitable on our first order that led to us kind of building momentum i would say the, the next one when we got more senior of a trial was probably early COVID. We were nine employees. You know, we thought our, our business was toast. And then, you know, two weeks later, we had two weeks stretch where we couldn't sell anything or like late March of 2020. And then we went and then uh, we sold out the next month. So we went from like, two, we had two extremes happen almost like back to back months where we had pull forward demand by like, three months. We, I mean, we sold everything in our store in 2020 because, you know, if you guys remember CPMs dropped and then uh, everyone was at home and they were buying stuff and then stimulus came, it was like, you know, we're paying for it now, of course. But uh, so then we, it was really, you know, we, we had to, one, we had to diversify our supply chain because our suppliers couldn't, we had to hire a bunch, like 10 people. Like, I felt like that's when the moment I went from, we had a bunch of guys in a room working on an idea to a company, probably faster than most transitions for CEOs. Like most CEOs that happens over the course of like a year or two, ours was like one quarter that we were like, we had to figure it out. And so that was just like a really, you know, I, 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 my uh, learning speed had to be fast or else, you know, something bad was going to happen. What exactly did you have to figure out? organizational structure, like how to hire the right way, which I didn't really do before. It was like friends of friends we were hiring. Like even uh, thinking different about business, like diversifying our supply chain. Like when we sold out, we were like, okay, this one supplier is not going to cut it. And we needed someone in Vietnam. We needed someone in China. We needed someone in LA. 
because it was so hard to get goods at that time and everyone was dealing with the same problem. So it just took a lot of effort and, and, and really deep thinking. And those were, and then people management, like, you know, going from 10 to 30 employees, like overnight, you know, making sure everyone's KPIs are focused. And, and it's just a different level of focus you have to have when you're managing, not just your KPIs now, but like all your directors and then their people. And if you're not, uh, intentional, you can easily waste a whole team. Like being intentional is so important. Intentional in what ways would you say are the most important? When, when giving direction, like not being vague, like uh, here's an example, like do influencer marketing. Well, how are we doing influencer marketing? Are we going to spend money on TikTok doing just seeding product? Are we going to have them, you know, uh, pay for a post? Is it going to be a one-time post or is it a series of posts? Like I was too vague when I first started because then things would be half-assed and I would be mad at the employee because they didn't get done to the fullest when it was really my fault for not being very, very detailed with expectations to be successful. Yeah, it's tough, right? Because you have to know enough about everything to be able to give that type of direction and make those kind of choices or help guide your team. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I need influencer marketing, go figure it out. And not really setting those kind of um, guidelines that can help people, you know, do well at their job. And so what's maybe the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader? Because you said you grew from like 10 to 30 employees. That's a lot. There's a lot of, I'm sure, like leadership skills you've maybe taken on in that time period. What are some of those? From a tangible one was, you know, learning to lean on OKRs, uh, objectives, and key results. We didn't have any of that. And so just understanding organizational structure, that's been something so huge for us. So if you're listening and growing a business, I would definitely recommend using OKRs. And if you use OKRs, you know, if you look at John Doerr's book, the best thing is don't try to do them perfect out of the gate. Like we're still not the best at doing like some things are an objective when they need to be a key result and don't get caught up in the nuance of it. Just start and then event and, and just setting it up will point you in the right direction. And so that that's been something big for us from just like a company structure of how we go about our business. Interesting. I like the um, entrepreneurial operating system. Have you heard of EOS? I haven't. I haven't. I got to check that out. Yeah, I should check it out. Awesome. And so what are some limiting beliefs you've had to overcome? I know like in the early days you had people saying, well, are you going to start a t-shirt company, you know, and I'm sure it just doesn't really end. So what are some of those other limiting beliefs that you've had to overcome and, and how do you do that? What kind of advice do you have for others tuning in to kind of get strong mentally? Well, the first one was, hey, a once your cuts is not a one size fits all. It's going to be too hard to buy online, not doing one size fits all. Like, what are you going to do with returns and exchanges and stuff like that? You guys don't know how to deal with that. And I think just having the attitude of like, you know, you're right. I don't know the answer to that, but we're going to figure it out. Was like an attitude that like the four of us when we started really embodied and, you know, like happy returns. We were their first fashion company their very first fashion company. And I sat there in there and I wish I would have took equity and happy with how big their valuation was, but yeah. we were, we would sit in their facility in LA and I, we, I would hire like people to help refurbish t-shirts and making, making them like new, like they asked me to come and we showed them how to fold the clothes, how to like kind of steam it. And now they have like hundreds of people that do that because of us. And, but we, when we started, we would have never known that a, a, a uh, a thing like happy returns would have existed. I just truly believed that online shopping was going to come. And if I believed in that, then things were going to fall into place. So sometimes just having a little, I call it blind faith to overcome limiting beliefs. Like if you really believe in it, there's going to be things that you're not going to know, but having that blind faith in the idea is what great founders have. They don't always know everything. They think from first principles and what's the easiest way to essentially accomplish this given task and they just have blind faith to figure it out. And that, that's been one of our uh, core principles of just, you know, overcoming limiting belief. I'm trying to think of another one. I know there's the, the one size fits all one was the first one because it's actually funny. Both the movement founder who was, you know, six years ahead of us and, and uh, uh, Pura Vita, both, you know, they both exited at a hundred million. Both of those founders told me when I sat in their office, 
Ecom founders said, hey, Stephen, this is going to be tough. I don't think you should do it. Both of them said it. And both of them had an opportunity to write a check. And Cuts is way bigger than both of those brands now. And so I had a lot of confidence in it. And Ecom founders told me that. And so, and, and, and be, but because of that, now I'm so confident that we're going to get to a, a billion dollar valuation in one day. So I think like when you can overcome belief, treat it as such a gift because it's going to give you the, 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 the courage and the, and the confidence to keep dreaming where not everyone has. So I, when, when I hear them and I can always hear them in my head, when I go to bed, I still hear them. I, I get excited because I'm like, it's just one more thing I get to overcome. And prove them wrong. I like how you said that blind faith. That's a good way of putting it. You get, definitely need to put your blinders on, I think, to be an entrepreneur. Everybody, all, all entrepreneurs, no matter how like good your idea is, there's always going to be haters or, or people who just don't understand or see eye to eye with your vision. And that's totally normal. I think what's not normal or what's really tough or hard for people is to overcome that. You know, I think um, a lot of people have a hard time. So having blind faith, guys, that's what we got to do. One more, one more on that regard. It's funny. In the early days when I moved to LA, uh, I, I kind of ran in this like USC group and I was this like outsider that went to state school. And I remember like being like out at this, like kind of like uh, afternoon bar, like casual bar place in LA. And I would tell people, oh, I'm starting cuts. And they would look at me like, yeah, that's a joke. These, these, these USC. Meanwhile, we were doing 30, 40, 50 K a day in sales. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this is so hilarious. These kids have their head so far up their ass that like, they just think they know better. And so I, I think as an entrepreneur, I've realized to like always give ideas the benefit of the doubt because I really don't know about a lot. And there's so many ways on, in life to make money. Like I'm, I'm continuously humbled where I'm like, that idea is doing a hundred million. To be a great entrepreneur, you really just have to like have like an open mind towards most ideas. Because if not, you're just going to look like a complete asshole. Yeah, that's so true. You just can't judge, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk about the product a little bit. Thank you so much for sending over these t-shirts. It was fun to have a little mini fashion show and try them all. Like I said, I've got the Ballet Crew Slim Tee on, which is super comfortable and just like a great everyday tee. And then, you know what color I really like? Normally I'm, I'm like black and white only, you know, I'm like, don't send me colors. I like black and white, but you guys sent me this sage colored shirt. And I was like, what is this? And then I put it on and it is an awesome color though. Sage, who would have thought sage is like, yeah, it's like a grayish green, dark green, but I like it a lot. And the, the fit is super interesting. I was like, oh, crop top. I'm so not a crop top girl, but this, I feel like I could get around because it's like a, a work leisure, which I like how you, you guys really are creating. I, you know, maybe I just don't know, but you, I think you're creating a new category here, probably very strategically if you read play bigger. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, uh, we talk to investors all the time and we, we haven't taken any one part of the story. I didn't mention, we still to stay have not, haven't, haven't raised we're nine figures in sales and, uh, just always been profitable and, and, and focus on, you know, the, the unit economics to do that. Uh, but when you look at like the market now, there's always going to be competitors after you, after you launch, but we, we truly are creating our own category of, of clothing. And it's, it's not like there hasn't been t-shirts before us, but again, it comes back to what I said initially is there's our positioning in the brand. We're not a basics brand. We never say to be basics and there's a million of those, but, and we're not an athletic brand we're, we're representing people in the new work environment. And so you, and you, you'll see our women's stuff for next year is so amazing. It's, it's, it's more, it's so much more than t-shirts. It's really going to fit, you know, trousers, certain things like this that are going to be really great for the new work environment for females. So I'm, I'm really pumped. That's awesome. And yeah, I love that you, you know, chimed in. I was going to ask about the investment. I had a feeling when we talked and met in Miami that it was completely kind of bootstrapped other than your Kickstarter and maybe the, the loans from your dad and you know, <laughs> these other things that you did. But um, did you ever take on any non-dilutive capital to help grow the business? We, so once between the two and $10 million uh, first two years, we were like, okay, we're really ramping up. We, and banks would only give me like $50,000 so I would do hard money loans with my friend's dads in college 
where I would give them 15% on like 250K and pay them back in four months. So like way better return than they could get anywhere else. It was such a ripoff in hindsight, but it did allow us the ability to, to scale when no one else would give us money. So we started doing that for a while. We did that with like three or four different people and that really helped. And then Shopify Capital was, 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 a, was great. Also really expensive though. But really the first three years were like these hard money cash, like high interest, quick turnaround loans, essentially that we had to rely on. And so it was the best thing because the interest that we paid was, you know, really expensive, 15% in four months. Like that's crazy, but it, it didn't dilute us. And one of my professors, this is a funny story, but after we did 2 million, I said, here, I'll give you 10% of the business for a hundred thousand dollars. He wanted 20%. And I said, no. And now I look back and I'm like, I am so glad I did not give up 10% of my business for a hundred thousand. Then after we did 10 million, I did the same thing for Jake, the movement founder. And this is after he's seen us do 10 million. I mean, he saw the financials and everything. I said, I want, and he had just got his exit where he made like 40, 50 million or something. And uh, I said, I need $250,000 or I needed uh, 2 million bucks for like another 10% or something. And I was going to have him and another guy do it. And he was like, no, I don't want to do it. Or, you know, couldn't come up with a big enough check. And then we ended up, you know, asking a few people and getting busy and and then kind of didn't do it. And then, you know, it's almost like every time we thought about doing it, we pushed another two months and then we realized we didn't need it. And that probably happened three or four different times. And I feel like every February, March, we always kind of think about it. And then we're like, now we don't really need it. And so, yeah, that's been a a blessing for us. That's interesting how that kind of happened, right? That they just, it just kind of didn't work out. And now you just have all the equity for yourself. (laughs) And I'll take that to the bank all day. I love it. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's interesting, the different mindsets. There's, I think a group of people that are like, I want all the equity for myself. I'd rather that than take on other investors. And I think there's another subset of entrepreneurs that are like, yeah, bring on the money. Like I want the I, dilution. Fine. I just, let's get the capital in the door. Let's get these investors. Hopefully they can help strategically as well. And just build kind of an entirely different type of business. I think there'll be, a. am not against uh, raising money. A lot of my friends have. And uh, I think if you, so the position we're in now is we might not even need capital to, for the, for the business. You know, we're, we're looking at potentially selling you know, thir- this is another option as a founder, you could sell 30% and just keep the money. You won't even need it as a, into the business. So you just have more options if you can wait longer. I think far too many people are like raise first. And there's a, you know, it, I just think people are in this over the last three years, they're just racing to raise money. And I think that it doesn't need to be that way for, for most ideas. You can find product market fit before you need to raise so, you know, $20 million. Well, and taking money off the table can be a, a good thing, I think, for founders. I don't think founders do it often enough, unfortunately. Or they wait and wait and wait and wait. And then, yeah, like, you know, market shift and things can happen. And then before you know it, you wish you took it off the table when you could. Totally. Yeah, look at now, like all these... uh you know, people are left, you know, might not be able to raise for a long time because, you know, yeah. valuation was so high. What are your, what's your two cents before we wrap up here on the current conditions? You know, there's a lot of fear in the air, I think, of what's going on with the economy and the markets, of course. And what are your thoughts on just like where brands are right now, what they should be preparing for, or what, what should they do? I actually uh, wrote a Twitter thread on this uh, not too long ago, but it's important to understand what just happened to be able to fix what's coming. And during 2020, two big things happened was a pull through sales. So a lot of brands just got sales in advance ahead of time. And so when, when the government print, printed money, it did two things. It gave and lowered interest rates to zero. It made brands, it made all of a sudden it inflated competition. So the sixth, seventh and eighth brand were able to get funded And then at the same time, these brands were getting funded that really should have never got funded. Consumers had extra money as well. So now that instead of buying two pairs of jeans, they bought five pairs of jeans, thus giving a false sense of a market. 
now you're seeing one, there's no more stimuluses and two, the interest rates have gone up. So people can't, uh, money's much more expensive. So businesses aren't being funded. So you really need to focus on being the number one in your category and being truly unique, having a, 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 a very unique product offering. You can't just copy the, the market leader because the customers are going to that. So it's super important just to be really focused on where you're going. Elon said it out at the conference, being undeniable, but it's even more important now. And I think, you know, businesses, you got to focus on good unit economics. You, we got to get back to the old way of doing business, which cuts us, you know, still followed is if you make two bucks, save one, you know, like you can't just, all, you can't just spend everything, every penny on marketing. You got to have, a, you got to run a good business. Actually, uh, the last night of the, the conference, I was able to talk to David Sachs, which is, he was my favorite on the podcast that we both listened to. And uh, I was in, I think this like VIP section where he was finally alone on the couch. I got a sec to meet him. I was like, hey, what do you think we should was do? Was this or, the last night event? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was back there A little too. behind the Yeah. <laughs> VIP section. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was cool because I didn't want to go up to them like and be like a fanboy. And like, I wanted him to know that I wasn't just like another guy there. I have a business and I, I was really there to help soak in every, every piece of learning. And we were talking and he was like, I was like, should we raise? We've had crazy offers to do this and that because, you know, uh, we're very attractive business right now. And he was just like, oh, just run it like a business, you know? And I think the, like that kind of stood out to me is like businesses were around to make money, you know, like that's what they exist to do. So, you know, not all businesses can make money right away, but if the old way of doing it, or I should say the 2010s of just like, raising a bunch of money, being unprofitable, like that's just not going to cut it anymore. So uh, I wouldn't be discouraged about it, but just live within your means. I think that's so super important. Live within your means. That's a good one. Cause I feel like personally, right. I think we all hopefully strive to do that, but yeah, as a business, that's absolutely crucial to be able to live within your means. So, and, and I think during times like this also try to talk to people that are, are smarter than smarter than you. I, I constantly do that all the time. I'm, I kind of talk to super old CEOs and then also the, the new ones, the ones that are just starting because sometimes those guys have like the newest hack that no one knows. So uh, stay humble, talk to people small, smaller than you, then bigger than you. And you, you, a lot of times you can find a lot of key traits to kind of help you get there. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up, do you have any other final advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs tuning in? You've already shared so much awesome advice, but if there's anything else lingering that you want to get out, let us know. And then what is next for cuts? I know you just launched women's, you're going to have more products probably for women next year. What can we expect? Especially right now, what would kind of what I last said is you got to really love what you do. I know that's a cliche answer, but uh, I, I still love cuts five, almost six years now. You know, if, if something you're passionate about, the, the, the difficult times won't seem so difficult. There'll just be another challenge. And if you're really, I know a, a lot of people always try to focus on doing what you love. And I hate that saying. It's find something that you can love uh, the process of doing it rather than the actual outcome. I think it's, it's super important because I don't love everything about cuts. You know, in the beginning days, I didn't like DMing, uh, you know, 100 people a day, but the, the overall uh, uh, process of cuts and the progress that we've been able to have is something I really enjoy. So if you can find something that you feel like you can do every day and you have your two hands can do it, I think that's where you kind of, that's your starting point. And then what's, what's next for cuts? You know, we, we look, we want to be a household billion dollar brand. Uh, I don't think we're that far away. You guys are already at a hundred million or more right now. Anyways, almost there. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll be there. Yeah, we're essentially there now. And uh, I think if we can continue to double and we want to be a household name. And so, uh, but we got to continue doing the, bit, the business fundamentals and women's is going to be a huge part of that, of just focusing on um, doing, building a great women's business and, and dominating the, the work leisure category. If we can do that, we'll be in good shape. Awesome. Cool. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you're back in LA. I'm not sure uh, what year you moved back from being at home, but you were only in Washington, I think for two years, right? And then you came straight to LA. 
2017, I moved to LA. Nice. Awesome. Well, let's hang, grab some coffee or something. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for sharing your story. It was awesome having you. I love it. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.